Listener Production. On a winter's evening, the 9th of August 1987, Julian Knight, a rejected army cadet, carried out his plan to gun down civilians on a busy Melbourne road. He killed seven and wounded 19. Many more were left traumatised by the events. It's been 35 years since that day. Knight gave police a detailed account of his actions. He was proud of his sick achievement. I'm real crime investigator Adam Shand, and in this special episode, I'm talking to ex-detective senior constable Graham Kent, who interviewed the killer. I asked Graham what it was like to assess the psyche of someone like this wannabe soldier. Welcome to Australian Detectives, Graham Kent. Thanks, Adam. Pleasure to be here and be good to have a chat. Tell me, how'd you get in the cops? Uh, well, I failed the entrance exam into the Navy. <laughs> so you got the naval beard now, by the way. You, oh, you, you oh, do very whatever. well. Uh, no, look, my dad was a cop. Uh, I had a few choices at the age of 16 of where to go. I'd already finished school. Tried teacher's college. Can you believe this? I, and I thought about I did one semester and I thought, oh, no, I couldn't handle being in front of a classroom of kids like me. Every day, so I joined the police force, and uh, you know, and um, it's been great. I mean, I had a, I was very fortunate to have a really good career. What was the ambition? I, uh, you know, I think I'm like a lot of others, don't really go in with ambition, just go in because it's a job, and then find your way. I very quickly decided that I wanted to become a detective, and I know it was fortunate to find my way, a pathway there, and had great opportunities um, as a detective in St Kilda, and then in the armed robbery squad, the homicide squad. Indeed. Now, six months into your career at homicide, the night of August 9, 1987, Julian Knight has killed six people, 19 are wounded, there'll be a seventh dying in the following morning. You're about to interview Mr Knight with another senior officer, Brian McCarthy? Yep. Do you remember that night? I do. I remember that night. I remember a lot about that night, yeah. The interview was uh, obviously a, a really critical part of it and I think it's great that it was recorded so people can see you really can get most of the story from the interview, particularly his version of the events. I what, think it came through really strongly. So the interview, yeah, I certainly remember that. And yeah. What were you expecting before you went to the interview? Was it St Kilda Road, I presume? Yeah, I think we were expecting him to talk about what he'd done. We weren't expecting him to hold back because... The two detectives who had spent some time with him beforehand had had a, a, a bit of a conversation with him. They hadn't interviewed him, but we got a strong sense from um, Kim Cox and um, Richard McIntosh that he was up for talking about it and telling us everything that he'd done. So we went into the interview anticipating that he would talk, but of course that can and often changes. However, in this case it didn't. The, the, their sense of what he would say was right and he went on and talked all about what he had done. How would you describe his demeanour? It was, in a sense, it was like he was doing a military debrief or an operational debrief of a of an event, of an engagement, which we gathered was consistent with his connection with the military, both through his father and also through the military training and activities that he'd, he'd been involved in, including 
for example, spending time at the Royal Military College, Duntroon. He'd been recently kicked out of Duntroon for having a fight with a fellow cadet, and he was denied all those dreams and fantasies that he'd planned for. I wonder whether when he gets in the interview room, he's suddenly with the people, the kind of people that he admires, detectives. And is he, is he seeking to impress you almost? There's a, a, a real sense of that, that he saw himself on our level. Equally, though, he talks about wanting to engage with our special operations group and to shoot it out with them and fight it out with them. Now, whether he really wanted that or not, or that was a fantasy, but he did talk at one stage about his expectation that they would arrive quickly. Well, they didn't arrive before he was arrested. So he sort of sort of put himself on that level of military skill, I guess, marksmanship, being able to perform at a high level in combat. He was really putting himself on that level as being, you know, a hero, an accomplished soldier. Did you find that he was being truthful in the interview or was he still portraying the fantasy now tinged with awful reality? Uh, but was there a sense of him talking himself up all the time and giving himself greater glory out of this? Uh, there's a sense of that, certainly, that he's talking himself up in terms of his professionalism, his skill, and, and that comes through, in my view, in the way he debriefed. I, I think, though, that so far as he was concerned, he was being honest. We didn't get a sense that he was telling us any fibs at all, trying to prevaricate or anything like that. I just got a sense that he was being honest. Um, that was what he believed and what he felt. And I say that with a note that that was just his personality. That wasn't a, by any stretch a mental illness symptom or a disorder. It was just, that was his personality. Because I guess as a homicide detective, you've had drummed into you, I guess going into court a few times, actus rea, mens rea, guilty mind, guilty act. You're trying to assess him at this point. Yeah. Do you think he's yeah. crazy? Oh, you're not a psychiatrist, but yeah. you have to take that into account. What, yeah. What's your impression? No, no, we didn't ever think he was crazy. And, and you know, I mean, you make have to make judgments pretty quick. And, of course, you, you also have to be prepared to adjust what you're thinking as you go. There's never a point at which we thought he was crazy. What you see if you uh, watch and read the transcripts of the interview is that we were very particular to ask him the questions about his intent. So there's some questions we ask about his intent when he was shooting at the cars. Were you shooting at the cars or were you shooting at the people in the cars? And his answer is, I was shooting at the people in the cars. The question is, why were you shooting at the people in the cars? And his answer is, well, it was to kill them. So a very clear establishment of his intent. Was he crazy? Uh, absolutely not. And we never thought so. Um, what we did, though, because there's a pretty obvious potential defence is that someone in these circumstances will come along and say, well, you know, I had a psychiatric illness, whatever. Because the average person will be yeah. saying you'd have to be crazy to go and do that. Yeah, that's right. So one of the really important things that Brian McCarthy did, and Brian was my senior sergeant and was at that point in time he was in perhaps a 10 to 13-year veteran of homicide and a most accomplished homicide investigator. And Brian was very quick to come up with the idea of engaging a forensic psychiatrist on our side, if you like, uh, for the prosecution, to speak with Knight and to make an assessment of him. Because we know that we have to prove the case. And so um, for that purpose, we got on to the most renowned forensic psychiatrist of the day, so far as we knew, Alan Bartholomew. We got him in. He interviewed Knight for, 
I think around about an hour, which you might think is not long. However, the important bit was that it was within, I think, 10 or 12 hours of the events. So it's very close to the events when everything's quite fresh in Knight's mind. Uh, and of course, um, Alan Bartholomew, with his training and expertise, was then able to carefully analyse the interviews that followed, the video recordings, the transcripts, and other material to make an assessment. And his assessment was unequivocal. There's no mental illness. He, he was not mad, not even in the lay sense. He was certainly not mad in a legal sense. However, he had a personality disorder. Quite a disorder. Quite a disorder. I think some would describe it as as a prick, basically. Narcissistic, self-centred. And I think I've come now over more recent years to understand a strong streak of misogyny in there, toxic masculinity. And um, that's just the sort of person he was. Full of self-pity. In the weeks leading up to this outrage, he has a fight at Duntree and gets kicked out. He comes home and finds that his mother has made his bedroom no longer his bedroom. Mm. He's having problems with his ex-girlfriend, won't take him back. Everything is going wrong for this Mm. young, immature male. And I'm sure in your police career you've seen so much of this immaturity in young males lead to Mm. other heinous events, as bad as this, but certainly many events. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it was only a few months before that I'd investigated the homicide where a young man who was rejected by his girlfriend followed her to a hotel, waited outside, and when she came out, shot her dead in the street. You know, she was 18, I think he was 18. And it's a very similar personality to this guy in terms of self-pity, rejection, not being able to cope with rejection, emotional immaturity, um, misogyny, you know, thinking that, you know, they've got rights and power over women. And also a kind of impulsiveness. I'm sure Bartholomew could point to the fact that there's a series of events. He's drinking, there's there's some upset in his mind. He starts to think about, he gets some visions supposedly about mm. soldiers coming and the fact that it's a call to arms and he goes out on an impulse, mm. which is not the same thing as being crazy. You, a lot of us have done stupid things while under the influence of alcohol. You know, you do things you regret in the spur of yeah. the moment, correct? I'm sure oh, you no, have, not you? No, absolutely. That, that is so. Now, um, on that though, that was one of the lines put to the sentencing judge on his plea was that this was impulsive and followed on the back of those things. He said he'd had a few drinks and therefore he was disinhibited. He'd had uh, the issues around his girlfriend, all of that. Now, we, the Crown, Joe Dixon for the Crown, rejected that altogether. And, and the interviews bear it out that they were not the reasons why he did this. It was more about him wanting to act out, engage and be drawn into and engage in a field of combat, in a um, theatre of war, and to be able to actually have a have a shootout. And I think there's also a degree there where he's, he's you know, trying to punish people, but by no means mad. And, and even the impulsiveness, we rejected that specifically as well, the Crown, in the address to the sentencing judge, by saying, no, he'd prepared for this. He had prepared. He was accomplished with firearms. He'd had three firearms. He had military training, albeit he'd failed. He had the time. He took time to gather his weapons, gather the ammunition and work out where he was going to go, being familiar with the neighbourhood in which he lived. And it continued. 
you might think an impulsive person might do something and then it finishes. This continued. This this carnage continued over a period of time and over a long stretch of along Hoddle Street and leading up along the Merry Creek and into Ramson Street where he was still shooting at the police officers who called on him to surrender. And... One thing I don't believe in the story that I've read many times is that he had this 7.62 millimetre round in his right jean pocket that he called his suicide round. He was mm. going to kill himself at the end of all this. Do you believe that? No, there's no evidence of that other than what he says. Yeah. And yeah. why would he say that, do you think? Uh, who knows? You know, suicide by cop is a real thing that people sometimes, that's how it ends up, that people are shot by the police. Sometimes people go out with that intent to have that be the end result. Fortunately, it only occurs very rarely that that is the result. Look, he gave up when his ammunition ran out. He gave up. But until then, he was shooting and trying to kill the police officers. And those two police officers, it just was at that point, were so brave and really suffered physically and, you know, their lives were changed forever at that point. It also is contradicted by other things that happened. So, for example, that he wanted to be in a shootout with the Special Operations Group at some point, he said that. And also, you know, he, he wanted to be in a theatre of war. The, the suicide bit just doesn't wash with me at all. Well, you'd imagine if this fantasy is about engaging yeah. the toughest troops, the toughest cops in the state, the hero will actually escape at the end, <laughs> victorious. Do you yeah. think that was in his mind? Maybe. I think that's part of his... Um, Part of his bullshit, basically. Part of his trying to put himself up as a hero, as a champion soldier, as, a, as someone accomplished. Because, you know, he'd been rejected because of his failure as a cadet soldier. He'd been rejected because of his failure in terms of a, being a reasonable person. Uh, he's trying to build himself up. And the only area he excelled in was firearms. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a gun person. I just hate them. But he certainly caused a lot of carnage. Yeah. Mm. Tremendous carnage. So as you're watching him, I guess gloating is mm. probably a word you could use, you've been in homicide six months at this time and you're looking at somebody who does not care about the consequences of his actions. It's mm. all about him. I think most of us would say that's we've been close to pure evil in that moment. Mm. That's a cliche, dramatic yeah. word for it, but I think there's for a police officer who's in that space, it, it is a quite a moment. Uh, it was. I, it never occurred to me pure evil, um, you know, some of the things in that moment for me, and I'm sure it is for most detectives, certainly for Brian McCarthy, who who was a really good example, was sort of trying not to think in those terms because you're so focused on getting it right because so much hinges on us getting it right. When I say getting it right at that moment, being able to get Knight's version of what occurred and being absolutely sure that we'll be able to present that to the court because that's our job. And so try and leave out the thinking, oh, this bloke is evil, you know, he's he's a jerk, whatever. You know, we do think about, well, is he mad or not? We need to be able to cover that off. And, um, you know, did he really mean to kill those people or was he just blazing away? We need to cover that off, and we did. So are um, you potentially looking at yeah. the difference between premeditated murder and manslaughter in those questions? Potentially, that's right. They did discuss, okay, what about a plea on this? But they were half-hearted about that because we they knew we'd reject it straight away. And so he ended up pleading guilty to the murder and to the attempted murder of all the other people. 
And you did two reenactments with Knight, one yeah. daytime, one nighttime. What was the purpose of that reenactment and what was his demeanour? What, what were your impressions of how he conducted himself? Yeah. Well, the purpose goes to really the opportunity that presented because in a circumstance of a mass shooting, it's rare to have the perpetrator still be there and it's rare that they will be able to or will in fact talk. And so that was really important to us to be able to get his version because it's his version that ultimately, you know, we need to prove intent. We need to be able to explain this somehow to ourselves, to the community, to the courts, uh, to the victims. So the purpose of doing that was let's do it in the best possible way. So filming it was important because it's far better than than the audio or, or the old-fashioned typewriter. But doing it at the scene where he could point things out turned out to be really important. The way that comes through really demonstrates the importance of and goes to the purpose of why we did that interview, why those interviews are important. When you can, you've got an opportunity of someone who's prepared to talk, capture it, and it gave us the opportunity to see really what he was like. It's kind of grotesque. Here's someone who's claiming to be such a great marksman and a mm. military hero or whatever, but these people weren't armed. They were just driving home, going out for dinner, going about their business. None mm. of them had any kind of response. So did it dawn on you that this guy was just in another universe? <laughs> no, not really. He seemed to us to be very present and it's what he wanted to do was to go and kill people what he wanted to do. Anything. And otherwise, ordinary, mundane, inadequate sort of life would, would gain some sort of legacy. Do something for him, yeah. More notoriety than legacy, I think, yeah. Look, who knows for sure? I think we, we all guess, but, I mean, the, the, basically the evidence is this was an incredibly self-centred, narcissistic, misogynistic, failed person who had had these thoughts had wanted to be in combat, but he failed to get there through the army. And so he's decided, I'm going to do this tonight. And he had the opportunity because he had those guns that he should never have had. And that's the point. It's This is just an yeah. ironclad example of why gun control yeah. is needed and should even go further, really. Um, I'm a huge advocate for further gun control. Um, you know, I, I'd been an advocate for gun control before this and, and absolutely since. And, you know, there's a lot of credit given to John Howard, of course, that's deserved. There were people trying before that. You might remember John Kane as Premier tried in Victoria to introduce gun control and he was done over because he had no support from the other side and he was done over by some of his own people as well. Can't afford to be complacent about gun control in Victoria because there's still incredibly prevalent in the community, the black market for them. And so, again, the community conversations around this are important. Sure. Normally, I guess well people, when they've done something bad, will reflect on it over a period of time and they'll start to have remorse. Mm. Did you see any change in night from the night when you first interviewed him to the reenactments? Well, I think the only other time we really had any sort of engagement was, um, remember though, we were with him for quite a while. It was a time when we went out and visited him in the prison, which was a very short engagement, and then otherwise it was in court. I, I very much, no, I'm actually pretty clear on the fact that, and, and um, you touched on it before, had no remorse or care for the damage he had done to people's lives and the, the carnage he'd caused. There was remorse for the fact that he was now in this scenario where he's, you know, probably going to spend a long time in jail and as it happens he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. There was a bit of that, but then I think 
my sense is that since then he's got over that and he's just settled into a life in jail. And that's where he is and that's, that's his life. But there's also the moment where his fantasy explodes, there's all the bravery and daring do falls away when he's engaged by the two officers, including Delahunty, who fires yep. a shot at him. Yep. And suddenly he's not reaching for the suicide round. He's mm. saying, pleading with the officers, don't shoot me, don't yep. shoot me. Yeah. As I say, it contradicts the suicide thing. He wanted to live. He didn't want to be shot when it came to the crunch. And I guess to me, again, that's a demonstration that he's, he's not mad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with him mentally in that sense. He didn't want to die. He wanted to live. But the bit about seeing his um, his dreams go away, I think he saw this is my 15 minutes of fame because, you know, he was lucid, he was excited, he was wanting to tell us his story, you know, he was wanting to impress. There's a moment there between interviews at some stage where he's flicking through the newspapers that had come out overnight. He's looking, ah, this isn't right, this, this is wrong, you know. Stuff like that. Yeah. He was still excited by it 12 hours later or more. Yeah. Personally, you went through this night and day for a long period of time. How did you debrief? I mean, you just see, you're hearing about all this carnage. You've got a young family mm. at the time, all this carnage. I mean, how do you mm. debrief on that? So it's a pretty unique situation for Melbourne, let alone for you as a, yeah. as a homicide detective. I mean, how did I debrief personally? So for me, I didn't have a day off for a long time. We just worked really hard. We had to. That's not a complaint. And back in those days, we didn't. We just kept going and going. You know, it was, that has changed largely now. We manage the fatigue and the safety and the well-being of our detectives and others much closer now than what we did back then. But one of the debriefs for me was that I remember, and you, you mentioned I had a young family, I had a toddler the same age as the boy whose mother was killed um, and the little boy was in her arms when she was shot. And I remember seeing that little child. We went and visited his grandmother and saw the child in the cottage the same age as my bloke. And I remember, um, I don't read a lot of newspapers, but I had a bunch of them and I took them down the beach with him and he's playing in the sand and I've got the newspapers spread out and that's the time when it really hit me. You know, that's the time where I shed some tears and thought, oh, this is huge. This is bigger than what I'd even thought about um, in terms of the harm that had been caused to individuals and to the community. This was in the middle of a very violent period for Victoria and Victoria Police. We'd had the bombing in Russell Street. We had Hoddle Street. We had the Queen Street Massacre. We had Wall Street, the murder of two um, police constables. What was it like being a police officer in this period? You're walking over through thresholds, you're yeah. dealing with things that you haven't before, yeah. and your personal safety is at risk. And obviously there was a criticism of Victoria Police after this period mm. that they were trigger happy. Yep. Are yeah. the two connected, all these events and, and that? Uh, oh, look, they probably are connected in some way. Some of the connections are, you know... I was across the road from the bomb and got blown backwards by it, the blast, you know, and I was con had other connections to a lot of those other cases. So I, I know I personally had a lot of connections with a lot of those cases in different ways. It was a violent time in Melbourne, so I was either armed robbery or homicide at the time, and, you know, armed robberies of banks and payrolls and things were violent episodes back then. I mean, they still are, but there's just fewer of them. Not great um, jobs for a bloke who doesn't like guns. 
No, it's weird, isn't it? I just didn't like it. So I, I think I, I mentioned to you a, a, an incident that happened to me around, uh, just around the corner from where we are in the studio. I was a constable. I didn't carry a gun. It wasn't compulsory back then. It's mandatory now. And the guy, eventually, I got him in a backyard and he drew his gun on me. Well, I had my baton and I threw it at him. And he gave up. He gave up. He must have been a good shot with the baton. <laughs> no, he just gave up. He, <laughs> like he, like he well, I don't think his gun was very effective, but he, anyway. You were lucky not to get shot at that moment. Yeah, probably more so by my colleague from behind. From behind, yeah. But right. anyway, but what was it like to be a cop in those days? I loved it. It was really good. You know, it was a really, it was a good job. Always had a sense that the job was important and always had a sense that we had to do it right to be able to make sure that whenever we took a matter to court that we had to be able to prove it. So we had to get it right, so we had to do it, you know, as best we could. And, yeah, it was exciting. You know. And it was a war. There was a, there were some pretty it ruthless seemed, crooks out there at the yeah. time. It sometimes felt like it, and you know, because we sometimes felt like we were taunted by, or well, we, in fact we were taunted by some of the bank robbers around at the time. What makes a good detective, in your opinion? What makes a good detective? What makes a good police officer? I think a lot of it is around. So much hangs on integrity. So much hangs on empathy, and uh, so much of it is on uh, you know some emotional intelligence. So those skills of being able to listen, the skills of being able to analyse, but being able to engage with people. I think what became apparent to me and more and more important as I, I guess, matured, because you know, I started off as, I don't mind saying, pretty immature, is really that skill to be able to engage, be able to stay calm, probably above all being able to empathise with people and just listen and understand what's happening. Because you had some big jobs over your career, including yeah. um, in the Homicide Squad and yep. commanding uh, out in the Wimmera district in the west of the state. Yeah. But your last role was a very interesting one. I guess brings a lot of those things together. Yeah. The Salas Task Force, what was it all about? Yeah. Salas Task Force was established after Ken Lay and others had advice from the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission about issues within Victoria Police around sexual discrimination, sexual harassment and indeed sexual assault. And the commission was engaged to do a report and at the same time we were established to start investigations of complaints of that nature. So it was a real turning point for Victoria Police to start to deal with what was and and I'm sure still is a massive problem with the way we treat women and, and more broadly the way we treat each other, but specifically with the harassment, the discrimination and and the sexual assault of women by police officers. Um, and in most cases, those women, or many, probably most cases, those women were our own people. So the task force was established to investigate those complaints and I was chosen to lead that task force. I've got to say, uh, four years, uh, that's probably the work that I'm most proud of in Victoria Police. It was hard work for the detectives. For me as the leader, it was it was what it was. For the detectives, it was really hard because investigating sexual assault is a difficult matter anyway. You know, it gets complex. It might be sexual assault. It might also involve domestic violence. It might also involve other crimes. That's difficult enough because you're dealing with victims who have been really traumatised. Dealing with the victims is the hardest part. Then the other layer on top was it was internal. So we're investigating our own people. And 
most of the victims were also OIN people. So it was an incredibly compounding effect that made it really hard work for our detectives. However, we made, in my view, a lot of progress. We made mistakes. There were things that didn't turn out the way we would have liked them and we had some victims who um, were not satisfied with, with what happened. On the other hand, we had some great success as well. We identified a number of police officers, including some very senior officers who'd been in the force a long time, who in fact were sexual predators. Largely, they've been moved on from the police force now. Some have chosen to re- retire. Some have been dismissed. Some in the force still? Some in the force still, for sure. Should they have been prosecuted, do you think? Uh, if they could be, they were, typically. Um, because one of yeah. the key measures of yeah. validity of the police in society is the idea that no one's above the law. Yeah. Did we have a situation, at least in the sexual harassment area, where there were people who were above the law in Victoria Police? I think it's very easy for people to have that view. It's like any other investigation. You have to have the evidence to be able to prosecute and you have to have, if you're talking about criminal prosecution, there has to be a reasonable prospect of, of a conviction and it has to be you know, in the public interest. So, and, and in those cases where, where we were able to satisfy the Director of Public Prosecutions that there should be a, a prosecution, then, then there was. We had some really interesting and difficult discussions with the director's officers at some times about whether or not matters should be prosecuted. Ultimately, it's their call. And there were some cases that went to prosecution and there were convictions. We also had an alternative pathway to deal with matters, which we used. It was a, it's a blunt instrument, our discipline system, but we did use it successfully in some cases to make sure that those people who had behaved in, in a way that had caused harm to either members of the public or to our own people were moved on. And I think that that measure was that the Chief Commissioner has lost confidence in you. It, it, that's one avenue. I don't want to be too technical. That's one avenue to get people out, but it's really hopelessly, it's hopeless. You can't use it. You can barely can use it. The idea was that we would have a discipline charge. If the charge was proven, they could be dealt with and they might be dismissed or otherwise dealt with. Large percentage of people when we presented them with the evidence we had and the, the uh, likelihood of either a discipline or a criminal charge, a large percentage of the people chose to resign straight away. And of those, a large portion of those actually took a pathway that said, well, I'm sick, I'm not well. So they, they used their sick leave and then they left. A lot of detectives, officers generally, find they go into Internal Affairs ESD, Ethical Standards, and it costs them friends. Did it cost you some friends? It certainly cost me some close relationships, yeah, yeah. And um, it caused me to, I've got no doubt, there are people I investigated who, and some of who were and are quite senior, we might not have been friends, but it um, made sure that we never would be. And they were people that were at least had a close professional relationship, but that changed. With the senior matters, I was normally involved more directly and it meant that those relationships were really fraught. The other side of that ledger, though, is that we did build up a considerable amount of confidence in the task force over the year, over the four years. We had some really good results. We gave a lot of, I think one of the really important things, and, and I hope it's still the case, and I know it's not universal. However, for many women in Victoria Police, we gave them the confidence to be able to speak up. 
speak up in a workplace to their managers or to their colleagues or speak up to us if they if they needed to. We also gave confidence to the men in the police force to be able to say, no, this is this is not right, and to pull up their colleagues for the bad behaviour and some in some cases to report it. So that, that was a big thing, giving people the confidence to be able to do that such that our workplaces would be much safer. Yeah, I can sense in you, maybe I'm an amateur psychologist here, <laughs> but I can sense a there's a bit of guilt and shame about the job that you loved treating people who you were working alongside in this way and that the more you looked into it, the more of a sense of purpose you developed. I think the sense of purpose was pretty much there. It, it, it probably became more focused sometimes, it sharpened. There's an enormous degree of disappointment. Guilt and shame is probably tinges of that, but enormous disappointment when you read of the way a, a police officer, one of our colleagues, has treated either someone in the community or treated one of our own such that that person has suffered considerable harm. And in the case of some women in the police force, it has finished their career, it has destroyed their aspirations. It's meant that not only the individual, but the organisation has missed out on realising the true potential of that person because, for example, they were preyed upon by a sexual predator or they were harassed or discriminated against because they were women. Yeah, and what's, yeah. The, what's, what's the motto? Tene la doi, uphold the right. Uphold the right. Yeah. yeah. Surely you can't be upholding the right when you're involved in sexism and misogyny and yeah. harassment. Yeah. Um, look, it's not just about Victoria Police, it's right across the community. I mean, I think there's a lot of commentary around what changed people's votes at the federal election, and a lot of it is around the treatment of women, including in, in the uh, workplace that is the federal parliament. So, you know, Victoria Police were like every other workplace, every other organisation had deep-seated, entrenched problems with how we treated women. It's generational change that has really, in my view, probably only just begun. You're out of the job about a year now. Yeah. I don't expect you to be the recruiter for Victoria Police, but if, if there's a young woman listening to this now and she's thinking about getting to Victoria Police, are you confident that the problems of the past that you looked at have improved, have been sorted out? Uh, absolutely. Um, I would say to um, anybody that now is a great time to be joining Victoria Police. It is a great profession. There's so many opportunities, diversity of opportunities, opportunities to develop, do really powerful, good things for people. It is a much safer workplace than it was back in 2014 when Ken Lay kicked off the response to what he had found, and then uh, it continued after the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission report was completed and the recommendations um, have largely have been enacted. But more so than that, at least back then, I can't speak for now, and I think there was a bit of a loss of traction, but at least back then there was a shift in the behaviour, if not the beliefs, but at least a shift in the behaviour of many of the men, because, you know, it is a men's problem, and it's the men's behaviour that had to change. And there's there has been a shift. And I would say, by all means, come in with confidence that you're able to stand on your own merits. You know, you can say no. You can be a participant in all the really good stuff. You can learn, you can develop, you can take the opportunities that are open for everybody. One um, real devil's advocate question here. 
crooks and a lot of cops have this old saying, do the crime, do the time. Mm -hmm. Julian Knight got 27 years, non-parole period until 2014. He's never going to be released. Do you think he should have been released? Does he have a case for release now? Uh, In my view, no. I wrote a report back uh, soon after he was sentenced that was a requirement at the time for the consideration of the parole board upon the expiration of the um, maximum time before people can be considered for parole. And we wrote then that there needed to be really careful consideration of his time in prison and how he behaved and how he responded. And and it had to be in the context of the horrendous crime that he committed. And I think that he himself has demonstrated that he's, and we touched before on remorse, he he himself has demonstrated that he's not fit for release. Now, the Victorian state government urged on by, I don't know who, but probably a number of areas have urged them, introduced legislation a while ago that will mean that he will only be released when he's pretty much close to death, when he's pretty much infirm. And unusual legislation, it's not unique, there's been a couple of other examples. Uh, Important legislation, though, that will protect Victorians from ever having to um, be fearful that if this guy was released, he would cause further harm. You still think about him? Very little, um, only occasionally. He's never, he doesn't live in my in my head at all. What I do think about, though, you know, I think about uh, every time I hear one of these things and we, we keep hearing of them from the US, it's, I just think of the horror and I think of you know, why on earth are we still living in a world where guns are so prevalent? And we're not immune from that in Melbourne. The gun, guns are so prevalent in Melbourne. Um, we're just fortunate that... It's hard. It is harder to get them, but there's if you uh, if you want them, you can get them. We've been kind of lucky, I guess. And every time these anniversaries come up, people like me and other journalists spend a lot of time talking about the achievements and in inverted commas of Julian Knight, as awful as they are. We don't spend enough time speaking about the victims. I don't think. And we're going to do a roll call at the end of this interview of those people who were murdered and wounded. Mm. Is the media? out of balance at times with the way it, it demonises and, and almost glamorises the random shooter? I think it's important that the these things are continued to be talked about, perhaps not ad nauseum. I think it is important that they are continued to be talked about because we we can't afford ever to be complacent about gun, about any sort of violence. Um, gun violence is, is a, a particular element. We can't ever afford to be complacent such that, for example, it becomes easier for people to get hold of guns, um, either through legislation or, or just on the in any way at all. Does the media is the media at fault? Well, the media has consumers, um, so you know people people buy your books, Adam. I guess and watch your podcast, listen to your podcasts. I hope so. If they don't, it'll be <laughs> your fault. I, by I, the way. I think that I think there's <laughs> I think there's a place for it to 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 still be part of the public discussion. What does live in my head a bit is the victims, particularly you know, thinking about the families of those who died and those who were put in a situation, whether they were injured or whether they were just confronted and, and, and suffered trauma some other way, you know, how this changed their lives and what the struggle's been like. You know, I mean, right through my career, I've uh, had colleagues and, and obviously victims of crimes and, and their families whose lives have changed forever. Uh, and diminished sometimes because of the trauma of violence. 
So, you know, that's what I think about when I think of this. And I, and I sometimes think, well, you know, I, I wish that I did more back then. And, and certainly, you know, when we talked about the example in the task force, one of the things we, we made sure of was that we were actually victim-centred. Our primary focus, we talked about prosecutions, they were important, but our primary focus was on the victim. One thing they don't, some of them don't like is being called a victim, but the person affected, the person who's had harm caused to them was our primary focus. And that's what I think about Okay, I'm sure a lot of police officers think the same way. Mm. Thanks for your time today on Real Crime Australian Detectives and thank you for your service to the community. Thank you, Adam. Thanks very much. The name Julian Knight is most often associated with the Hoddle Street Massacre, but we must never forget those who lost their lives or were injured. Here are the names of those who passed away. Tracy Skinner, 23. Johnny Muscat, 26. Vesna Markovska, 24. Robert Mitchell, 27. Georgina Papioanu, 21. Kenneth Stanton, 21. And those injured. Con Vitkos, Rita Vitkos, Alan Jury, Monica Vitelli, Diane Fitzpatrick, Zoran Tricheski, Edward McShortle, Keith Wing-Shing, Adam Skinner, Peter Kermy, Steve White, John Finn, Andrew Hack, Michael Smith, Jacqueline Meggins, Renata Caldabella, Danny Caldabella, Colin Chambers, John Delahunty. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.